Unless otherwise indicated, Ratchet Book Club is intended for a mature audience. Viewer discretion is greatly advised. Welcome to Ratchet Book Club, where we read hood classics and good classics. I'm Derek. 916-633-1537. Ratchet and Ratchet at gmail.com. Ratchet Book Club on Twitter. Um, you can leave a review on Podchaser. Cool thing about that is you can leave a review for the show and also for each separate episode. Both is Both are dope and both are appreciated. Chapter 42. Tim figures it's about time he called the monk, because life ain't gonna let him live unless he squares things with Huartero. Powell's kit into the car and they drive up to Julian, about 30 miles away, to make the call. They do this because Tim figures it would be a stupid moke thing to call from the phone booth at the motel, and he's doing his best to quit being a stupid moke, and fuck you, Agent Garuza. Kit picks up on it, though. When they pull into Julian, which is the old gold mining town in the mountains that hit the skids and now sells apple pie to tourists. Place still looks like an old western town though, so the phone booth Tim pulls up to looks out of place. We came here to make a phone call? The kid asks. Yeah. Uh, there's a phone booth at the motel. With that like, duh voice kids like to put on. This is a spy thing, Tim answers. What did they trace the call? Cool. Way cool, Tim answers. You wait in the car. Why? Kid is seriously annoyed. Kid doesn't want to be left out of any spy action. Tim's about to answer, because I told you to, that's why. But then remembers his old man and thinks better of it. So he says, What if you got captured? Captured? Kit looks a little pale, like he's forgotten this is a game. Yeah, captured, Tim says. You can't tell what you don't know. Which isn't strictly true, Tim thinks, because he knew lots of guys in jail who were all the time telling the DA's office things they didn't know. Usually worked, too, because the DA always believed them, because it let them jam up some poor jerk that didn't have enough evidence to convict. Much easier to haul some jailhouse rat in to say, We were sitting in the jail cell and this guy told me he did it. Anyway, he doesn't think he could share this miserable fact of life with the kid, who just doesn't have the soul of a rat anyway. So he repeats, You can't tell what you don't know. The kid bites, saying, And anyway, someone needs to guard our spy car. Right. Look out for bad guys. Right. 
What do the bad guys look like? Tim wants to answer. If you don't see him in your mirror, you better assume it's a bad guy. But instead, he says, they're driving silver cars. Silver? Yeah. Okay, Kit says seriously, and he gets busy watching out for silver cars. Tim goes to the phone and dials the number Elizabeth gave him. Tim's heart is like fucking racing because he doesn't know who's on the other end of the line. Three rings and a flat voice answers. Yeah. Yeah, it's me, Tim says. Long fucking pause during which Tim thinks maybe he better hang up and race out of there. He's a heartbeat from exiting the stage left when the voice says, Bobby? Like, he just can't believe it, right? Like he's beside himself with fucking joy. Like someone's come back from the dead, huh? Yeah, Tim says. Bobby. Then he takes a huge chance. Who's this? Tim asks. Another pause. Run away, Tim thinks. But he hangs on. It's me, man, the voice says. The monk. The monk, Tim thinks. The monk is like the guy, right? Bobby's right-hand man. Man who knows where everything's hidden. Good to hear your voice, man. It's good to hear yours, the monk says. Where have you been? Your mother and I have been worried sick about you. Where haven't I been, man? You sound different. Shit. Run away, Tim thinks. Get in the car and drive as far as it'll take you. Which is like maybe El Centro, right? Which just ain't gonna cut it. Gotta get through this, Tim tells himself. So he makes his voice kind of hip, annoyed, and growls. You sound different too, man. You've been where I've been. You ever seen a Thai jail, monk? I've avoided that pleasure so far, babe. Babe. Fuck you, babe. Yeah, well, that's a good idea, Tim says. You coming in? I'm too hot, man. You can, like, hear the guy thinking over the phone. What do you need? Monk asks. Cash, Tim says, and a new passport. Ask and ye shall receive. I'm asking, Tim says. I need about 20K for starters. You want to meet at the old place? Sure, Tim thinks, except that nobody told me where the old place is. No, Tim says. Okay, where? Someplace crowded, Tim thinks. Someplace I can bring a kid. The zoo, Tim says. The zoo? San Diego Zoo, Tim says. Tomorrow, 2 o'clock. Where exactly? Tim's never been there, but he figures every zoo's got elephants. So he says, outside the elephants. Plus, kid will like the elephants, right? Kids like elephants. Tim can hear Monk thinking again. Then Monk says, I'll bring the stuff in a plastic Ralph's bag. Can you get one of those? 
Sure. Two o'clock. Tim decides to take another chance. Also, he says, I need some information. Shoot. What did we do to Don Huertero? Using the we to drag old Monk into it. Give him more than just a rooting interest. And Monk thinks it over for a long time. Unless he's tracing the number. So, Tim asks. Nothing I could think of. Do we have something that belongs to him? Nothing I know about. Work on it, huh? Tim orders. I'll talk to you tomorrow. Tim hangs up. If Monk was tracing the number, it was time to leave. Also, Kit is hopping up and down the seat because there's a silver car coming down the street. Bad guys, Kit whispers as Tim gets back in the car. We'll have to lose them, Tim whispers back. Can we do it? Oh, yeah. I'm Bobby Z, right? Tim finds a hardware store where he buys some PVC pipe, a hacksaw, and some steel wool. At the general store back on Mount Laguna, he buys the usual crap, some chocolate chip cookie dough, and the thinnest cookie sheet they have. He's struggling with all this shit when Kit runs ahead to the cabin so he can unlock it. It's funny, Tim thinks, what little stuff will make a kid happy. They bake cookies at night. Kit does, anyway. Tim doesn't have a fucking clue how to bake cookies. He tried to get a job in the kitchen at Quentin, but they put him in the license plate factory instead. You know, I really like the way Tim is dealing with Kit and not talking down to him. Like, it's really important that y'all know how much I treasure children and the opinions of children. Like, I damn near treasure them more than I treasure adults. Adults are some punk motherfuckers who are, like, selfish and and have underwhelming goals and just look kids are honest as fuck and they just want to be great or they want to be left alone and they'll tell you you just got to listen to them so the fact that kit is talking with tim and tim is for a second he got annoyed but then he was like my dad would have gotten annoyed and i don't want to be like my dad that hit me in my chest it did good on you tim Chapter 43. The monk hangs up the phone and looks out over the ocean. The living room has floor-to-ceiling windows, so this isn't too tough to do. House sits on the edge of a point with rock cliffs on three sides, so if you want to see ocean, you can see ocean without straining your neck. You can see El Moro Beach to your right and Laguna Beach to your left. House has a million-dollar view, which it should, because it costs three times that. Dope money. Bobby Z's money. Problem is, now he's back. What's shaking Monk up is not so much that Bobby's back. That's a problem in the physical world. It's that one way's prophecy is being fulfilled. You take a hike on God, fulfilled prophecies are bound to make you a little hinky. The zoo, the monk thinks. Since when does Bobby go to the zoo? Why not meet at the cave in Salt Creek Beach like they used to? Or the steps at Three Arch Bay? Why the zoo? 
because he doesn't trust you, Monk thinks. He wants a public place. Paranoia, Monk sighs as he slides the glass door open and steps onto the deck. The bane of the drug market. 20K and a passport. 20K is lunch money to Bobby Z, but he sure seems sweaty to get it. And a passport. Bobby's splitting the country again, so that must mean he's feeling heat from the heat, and not just Don Huertero. You just can't get out of Don Huertero's jurisdiction. Not breathing, anyway. And who's Bobby kidding with this what-did-I-ever-do-to-Don-Huertero bit? The monk wonders if Bobby didn't have someone listening to the conversation. Like maybe Huertero already has Bobby, and he's setting me up. There's no loyalty, monk sighs, in a godless world. Because the fact is that monk rips Huertero off big time. And Bobby, for that matter. Bobby took the old Mexican's money, three million Yankee dollars, for some Thai opium and delivered it to Huertero's boys in Bangkok. But Monk ratted them out to the Thai police, then split the opium and the profits with the Thais. Sorry, Don Huertero, but the Thai police busted your boys. Say adios to your investment. Bad luck. Well... Monk thinks as he watched some surfers catch the reef breakdown on El Moro. Wartero must have figured it out. And he's mad. And now Bobby's in trouble and he wants to know why. We'll want to have a look at the books. We'll probably want to give the money back. I don't think so, Monk thinks. He drives into town and cogitates on the universe over an Italian cappuccino. He still can't figure out how that acid casualty one way knew that Z was back. It spooks him. By the way, cogitate means to think deeply about something, meditate or reflect. You're welcome. Spooks him so much that he drives down to Dana Point to check on the boat. Looks over his shoulders, he strides down to the slip. Doesn't see one way or anyone else, so he starts to figure that even a lunatic gets lucky every once in a while in the old prophecy business. True? If a hardcore skits like John the Baptist can hit it, maybe one way can too. So relax. Monk goes below and starts in to work with a screwdriver and woodworking knife. Two hours later, he removes a section of plank and reaches into the hole. Fills a nicely wrapped package of cash. Works diligently to replace the plank. And while he's working, he's thinking. Maybe it's time to sail away. But first, he has to get Bobby his chump change in his passport. And then kill him. Chapter 44. Gru's is pissed because he's getting ashes all over his new shoes. He's standing in the ruins of Casa Brian Curvier, and the wind's blowing ashes all over his brand new pair of Cordovan Bostonians that he got on selling Nordstrom's. Somebody pointed that out to me. That I, along with a lot of black folks, put S's on things that weren't supposed to have S's on them. Until I read this in this book just now, I really do always say Nordstrom's and J.C. Penney's. I didn't think of it as J.C. Penney. I didn't think of it as Nordstrom. Because who the fuck would name they store that? Stupid. 
Groves is also unhappy because Brian got whacked almost two weeks ago, and no one thought to tell him about it until now. So now, he's standing out in the middle of fucking nowhere, ruining the shine on the shoes and looking down at the crispy remains of Major League pervert and scale Brian Curvier, who looks like he's been napalmed. And Gruza figures that with the disaster this big, that stupid moke Tim Kearney just has to be involved. Carbon in his lungs? Gruza asks a young DEA agent whose name he's already forgotten and looks like he's been on the job for maybe a month. The M.E. says no. So Brian got lucky, Gruza says. Died before the fire. What? Did his clothes all burn up? No. He was naked. So there's luck, and then there's luck, Gruza thinks. And they say Bobby Z was here? Gruza asked for about the 15th time. We rounded up some of the household staff in Borrego Springs, and they all say the Senor Z was a guest at the house. But we haven't found Senor Z's body, Garuza repeats. No. Because Senor Z is a trickier motherfucker than I thought, Garuza admits to himself. What about this dead German, Garuza asks. Engine failure, the kid says. It looks unrelated. What are you, stupid? Garuza asks. You got a crispy critter drug dealer and slave merchant. His Heinrich business associate dropped out of the sky like a meteor. You got some big rock in the middle of the desert with dead Indians all over like it's a John Wayne movie. And you think anything's unrelated? You think what? The house gets hit by lightning and goes up like Nagasaki? Where are you from? Iowa? The kid stands there turning red and it isn't from the sun. Kansas. He says, this is fucking great, Gruza says. I'm going up against Don Huertero and fucking Bobby Z and fucking who knows who else. And I got some goober from Kansas on my side. Say the truth. They have drugs in Kansas? Sure. Sure. What do they have? Kid starts listing drugs, but Gruza's not listening. He's thinking that now this all-American loser Kearney starts believing that he is the great Bobby Z and starts leaving bodies in his trail like breadcrumbs. Fucking asshole thinks he's Hansel or something out there. Well, at least he's left the trail. Crystal meth, ecstasy, cocaine, crack cocaine. Shut up. The agent shuts up. Can't you tell I'm fucking with you? Gruza asks. He's well and truly aggravated. If he had been told about this right away, Carney's truck would still be hot. He could still pick him up and deliver him to Huertero. But now... I want this cleaned up, Gruza says. Like yesterday. You tell the park rangers nothing ever happened here. You bury those fucking Indians. You ship that German back to Frankfurt. You blow up those bunkers. And you send the Mexicans back to Mexico. Can you do that? Yes, sir. Don't call me fucking sir, Garuza says. I look like some kind of officer to you. Garuza scans the debris again. A fucking amazing, he thinks. Cortero comes across the border like it's 18-whatever, kills the gringo, burns the place to ashes, and then slips across the border again. Fucking Don Cortero's a serious man. So I can't fuck around, Garuza thinks. He looks down at Brian's body, if you want to call it that. 
and can see what happens to someone who disappoints Wartero. What I need to do, and quickly, Cruiser thinks he gets back into his car, is deliver young Timmy Carney to Don Huertero. Dead on delivery, so he can't open his stupid mouth. Problem is, Carney's turned out to be a tougher takedown than I thought. Simplify, huh? Gruza looks down to see that the ashes from his shoes are now on his carpet, and he just vacuumed the goddamn thing. He's in one murderous fucking mood when the phone rings. Hey, cocksucker, Boom Boom says. What do you want, lard ass? I found your boy. Suddenly, Gruza's feeling a little better. No shit, he says. No shit. So then Gruza's not feeling so bad about his shoes. Fuck the shoes, he thinks. I could buy lots of shoes. Pretty soon, I'm going to be rich. Chapter 45 Tim gets Kit to sleep after Baywatch is over. Baywatch is one of the shows they both like. Kit gets off on the rescues and saving people and all that happy shit. And Tim gets off on the women jogging around in wet bathing suits. He figures that these are the kind of women who jog around in wet bathing suits on the beaches that Bobby Z would frequent. They had a lifeguard at the public pool in Desert Hot Springs, he remembers. They called her Big Blue because she wore a bright blue one-piece bathing suit. No one actually ever saw her swim. The popular theory was that if anyone started drowning, Big Blue would just jump in and raise the water level so that the drowning person would just sort of wash up on the edge of the pool. No one ever volunteered to test the theory, though. So Tim's memory of Big Blue was her sitting up in that big chair, reading Mademoiselle magazine while chewing on beef jerky. Tim doesn't think that any of the girls on Baywatch would even know what beef jerky is. Anyway, he finally gets Kit to bed so that he can get to work. He takes the section of PVC he bought and saws off a straight one-foot piece. He stuffs rough grade steel wool into the pipe and then screws the end cap down onto it. He fits this onto his pistol belt until he sees it'll fit nice and snug, then takes off the pipe. Chapter 46 Tim pays for the bag of Oreos, bottle of water, cheese snacks, loaf of bread, and jar of peanut butter. And the bagger asks, paper or plastic? Plastic, please. He and Kit leave the Ralphs and get back in the car. What's the surprise? Kit asks again as Tim pulls out of the parking lot and works his way back to the freeway. If I told you, it wouldn't be a surprise. Oh, man. Oh, man. Tim mocks him. You'll know in a few minutes. So it's someplace in San Diego, Kit says to himself. Kid's having a great time. Tim wishes he was. Fact is, he's scared shitless. Doesn't know what he's walking into. Doesn't know if the monk is righteous. Doesn't know who's going to be waiting by the elephant. Just doesn't know, and that scares him shitless. Except it's kind of fun to take the kid on this surprise. It doesn't seem like anyone's ever done that for the kid before. Because Kid is like out of his skull with excitement. Tim turns off the 163 where the sign says, 4th Avenue, Balboa Park, Zoological Park. 
Kit's pretty smart and he sees the zoo in Zoological. We're going to the zoo, he screams. That's a surprise, isn't it? The zoo, right? Maybe. It is. I know it. The zoo. Bouncing up and down. You never been to the zoo before? Tim asks. No. Neither have I, Tim says. They drive through Balboa Park and follow the signs to the zoo. Drive around the huge parking lot until they find a spot. Okay, Tim says. Your job is to remember what row we're in. The ostrich row. Picture of an ostrich on top of a big pole on their row. Ostrich row, Kit repeats. Ostrich row. Because that would be the shit, Tim thinks. Pull this off and then not be able to find the car. That would be a classic Tim Kearney fuck-up. Tim buys her tickets and can't believe it costs 14 bucks to get into a fucking zoo. But it does, and he pays it. First thing he does inside is look at the map they gave him with the ticket. One of those cutesy fucking maps with pictures of all the animals, and he looks for a picture of an elephant. Okay, y'all may not be like me, but I'm dying of curiosity. Tickets to the San Diego Zoo at this point cost 62 goddamn dollars. Holy shit! $62 for an adult and $52 for a child and you're out your motherfucking mind. There's no way I'm paying that much to see some animals in jail. You better suck my ass. Uh-uh. I'ma just hop the fence. The fuck they gonna do? Throw me out? By the time they throw me out, I've seen some animals anyway. Ha-ha, I got you, motherfuckers. Or I'll just walk around the outside and look in and see the outside, the um peripheral <laughs> the peripheral animals. Dad, you never take us to see the good animals in the middle of the zoo. Nope. I figure all the good animals are out here. Where we are. We're the good animals. They're in jail. Remember that. Never go to jail. That's what I do. Next thing he does is gets the lay of the land. The zoo sits on the slope of a big hill and the footpaths switch back up and down. There's also one of those gondola cable things running from the bottom to the top. There's only one exit, and that's beside the entrance where they're standing. Can we ride that? Kid asks, pointing at the cable car. Tim consults the map and says, sure, why not? They have plenty of time, because he's made sure they're early. Goody, Kit says. Goody, Tim thinks. Take the kid to the zoo, and the kid turns into a kid. I think it's a good idea, Tim says, and they go over to the gondolas and get into one of the open-top little cars. Tim's not thrilled that the thing rattles and shakes as it climbs up the hill, but it does give him the unexpected advantage of aerial surveillance. So up they go. Kid's looking at antelope and buffalo and birds and stuff, and Tim's looking over near the elephants for someone carrying a white plastic rouse bag. Someone who looks like he's not all that interested in the elephants. Tim thinks he sees this tall, thin guy who fits the description, but isn't sure. So when they get to the top, they get out on the observatory deck, and Tim puts quarters into the big binoculars. Had to take turns with Kit, so it costs about 75 cents for Tim to get a good enough look at the guy to decide that it's the monk.
He isn't fat. He isn't wearing a brown robe or a hood. And he doesn't look like he's out of a Robin Hood movie. But Tim decides this guy's the guy. Plum polo shirt. Khaki dockers. Black baseball cap. John Lennon shades. Moccasins with no socks. White plastic Rouse bag. Very hip. Standing there looking a little nervous and a little bored. Of course, he's there early too. Half an hour early and the guy's there already, which makes Tim even more edgy. Tim would like to know if the guy's alone. But there's a crowd down there. And how can you tell who's just there and who's like, there? He's scoping out single men, no families, no girlfriends, when the image goes dark. I'm out of quarters, Tim says. What do you want to do? Kid asks. Did you ever, Tim asks, play spy at the zoo? Kid smiles like the day just got more perfect than he thought was possible. How do you play that? He asks. First, we have to find a guy carrying a white plastic bag, Tim says. Is he a bad guy? Don't know. Tim says, but he's thinking he's probably going to find out. Chapter 47 Boom Boom watched the old fucker drive off in his car. Old Coot steams off like he's got a woman waiting, so Boom Boom figures he got himself some time. Ain't going to need a lot of time to do this, though, he thinks. Cheap old door. You can spring the lock with a snowball. Boom Boom lets himself in and closes the door behind him. He's relieved that there's still food and clothes and shit there, so he ain't too late. Carney's a dead fucker. Boom Boom works fast. He has nimble hands for a fat man. He shapes the plastic into a thin line and molds it across the top of the door frame. He gently closes the door and tests its play. Then he runs a thin wire across the inside of the door, strips the end, Runs it through the blasting cap and sticks it into the plastique. When Kearney opens the door, what he'll be doing is like pushing a plunger. Ka-fucking-boom. His body's going to be standing there wondering where its head went. And stink dogs will finally be able to let the brew down in hell. Be nice and ready to welcome Kearney when he gets there. Boom Boom takes the screen off the bathroom window and squeezes out. He can sit and have a beer down the road and watch for Kearney's shitty car to come back. Follow Kearney back up and watch the fun. Watch the boom boom. Chapter 48 Macy drives down to the biker bar and sees the man sitting in a booth in the corner. This has to be the man because he doesn't look like a biker. He looks like a man who's waiting to meet somebody. That someone is me. Macy thinks. I'm ready to make some money. He looks at the man, and the man points with his eyes to the seat across the booth. Macy sits down. Are you the guy who's looking for someone? You got something for me? Johnson asks. That depends. Johnson isn't in the mood for games. His shoulder hurts and he's tired. He's been combing the countryside for 12 long days and nights now, asking in every shitty bar and tavern, putting it out on the circuit that he's looking for somebody. 
Then he gets the word that some old man is trying to sell somebody, except he doesn't know who and what for. Anyway, it seems to be a match. A seller looking for a buyer. Only I ain't in the mood for bargaining, Johnson thinks. Depends on what, he growls. On the price, the man says. Then adds, my name's Macy. Sticks his hand out. Johnson just looks at it. How much do you want, Johnson asks. Five thousand, Macy whispers. His eyes light up with greed. Johnson laughs. I don't have 5000 on me, he says. The old bastard's face looks disappointed. But I have it in my truck, Johnson says. That gets Macy smiling again. Half now, Johnson says, half when I get my man. Getting your man is your problem, Macy says. I'm not going to lose out just because you can't do your part. Half now, half when you identify him as a man you want. Macy describes him. When he's done, Johnson asks, Man, I'm looking for is alone. Your man alone? Johnson sees a cloud come over Macy's face. Macy says sadly, This man has a little kid with him. Johnson smiles and asks, Little girl? Boy. Macy says. Johnson smiles and says, Mister, thank your stars you got an honest streak in you. That's the man I'm hunting. Macy grins like a butcher's dog. That man's at my motel, Macy says. Johnson says, Come on out to my truck and I'll give you your money. They go out to the gravel lot and Macy hops in the pasture seat. Lock your door, Johnson says, and Macy pushed the button down. Johnson reached across into the glove compartment and takes out a white envelope. He hands it to Macy, who tears it open. Macy counts the money and asks, What's this? It's 500 bucks. It's what you're getting. Now listen, mister. Johnson takes his good right hand, grabs Macy by the throat and shoves the man's head back into the window. Once, twice, three times, real hard, until a stain of blood shows up on the glass. No, you listen, mister, Johnson says. Five hundred's what you're getting, and you'll be happy with it. You're also going to keep your mouth shut, or I swear I'll come back and beat you into a pulp. You understand? Now where is he? Denati Pine, just up the road, cabin eight. Macy croaks. Johnson's hand is still tight around his throat. He there now? Johnson asks. Macy shakes his head. You tell me the truth? Macy nods. Where'd he go? Johnson asks, alarmed because maybe Bobby's luck is holding and he's already taken off. Johnson almost can't stand the thought. I don't know. Macy croaks. Shit, Johnson says, releasing him. Regrets it the second he does because the old bastard starts to reach behind him and Johnson realizes he must have a pistol stuck in his waistband. Johnson doesn't have time to pull his own gun. 
So he throws his weight across the seat and slams Macy into the door, pinning the old man's hand behind his back. Johnson keeps pushing so the old man can't bring that gun around, and the old man keeps trying to get his arm out so he can shoot Johnson. The windows start to fog up as the two men struggle and suck air, and Johnson watches Macy's eyes get real wide as the old man realizes he's fighting for his life. Johnson digs his feet into the floor and pushes harder. Goddamn shoulder hurting like hell where he's pushing, but he needs his good hand to get the pistol from its hip holster, and he does. And Macy's eyes get real wide like a horse is seeing a saddle for the first time, and just figured out it's going on him. Macy's eyes are that wide when Johnson takes the forty-four barrel and shoves it through the old man's teeth. Macy makes choking noises and shakes his head wildly back and forth. And Johnson has a tough time holding the barrel in there as he pulls the trigger once and then again. Johnson holsters the gun, starts the truck up and drives out of there. There's blood, hair and brains all over the pasture window. But he figures he can clean that up when he gets to the motel. He wants to be sitting in that room when Bobby gets home. He pulls his truck into the Naughty Pine Motel, looks around, then carries Macy's body into the motel office. Sits him down in the back room and puts a pistol in his hand. Looks for and finds the keys at cabin 8. Drives the truck down the road a piece and leaves it at a scenic turnout. Hikes back up to the cabin and puts the key in the lock. Chapter 49 Tim parks Kit by the gorillas. There's a bench there on a little knoll and it's an easy place to find. Don't move from here, he tells the boy. I'll only be a couple of minutes. Why? Do not move from this spot, Tim says. Okay, okay. Kit's pissed off, but Tim doesn't care. If everything's cool at the meet, he'll be right back. If things are uncool, there's no reason to walk the kid into it. The kid sits on the bench and won't look at Tim. I'll be right back, Tim says. Kit just stares towards the gorillas. Tim stops in a men's room on his way down to the elephant. He goes into a stall and fits the homemade silencer over the pistol barrel, jams it into the front of his pants under his denim jacket. Then he takes a cookie sheet from the bag and sticks it into the back of his pants and pulls the jacket down over it. On the way out, he steps in front of the mirror to see if he looks like he's walking anywhere close to normal. Decides he is. Maybe he's a little stiff, but also decides it's going to play hell on any hopes of future sex life if that pistol goes off accidentally. The elephant exhibit turns out to be a good choice. It's on the end of a broad, straight walkway that allows Tim a good view on his approach. The monk's still standing there, the white bag dangling from his wrist. Tim tries to look around to see if there's anyone else at the meeting who shouldn't be but he doesn't see anyone too obvious just hanging out. Mostly, it looks like foreign tourists and tour groups and old people. He doesn't know what he's looking for, really, but there's no guys with shades, radios, and machine guns standing around, so he decides to go ahead in. Anyways, Monk spots him, takes off his shades, and gives him as hard a look as you can give a man you're pretending not to see. Monk checks him out and then turns to the elephant and leans against the railing. Tim steps up beside him. Good to see you, man, Monk says. 
It's been how long? Long time, Tim says. You look changed, Monk, Tim says. So do you. Time. Yeah, Tim says. Monk? Yeah. Don't look down, but I'm holding a silence 9mm pointed at your gut. You don't trust me, Bobby? I don't trust anyone, Monk, Tim says. Let's swap the bags now. Tim can't see through Monk's shades, but there's that slight motion of the head that Tim's seen a few hundred times on the yard. That look over the shoulder of a con who's about to get it from behind. He sees it a fraction of a second before the blade of a heavy knife hits the cookie sheet over the small of his back. The point slides off where it was aimed, but slices the side of Tim's stomach. Tim looks down and sees a bloody blade straight under his right arm. He traps the attacker's elbow under his own right arm, then grabs the guy's wrist with his left hand. He presses down with his left and up with his right until he hears the guy's elbow snap, and then he lets go. And Monk is like, gone. Tim's walking away before the would-be killer hits the ground. Here's some old lady yelling, Somebody fainted! And he guesses that the elephants are shook up too, because they're making those noises from the old Tarzan movies. And then Tim realizes he still has a knife in his hand, and he tosses it on top of a pizza box in a wire trash basket. Another classic Tim Kearney fuck-up in progress. He thinks as he notices the warm, sticky feeling of blood coming from his right side and realizes he would be like fucking dead if he hadn't taken the precaution of that old trick from the prison kitchen. Remembers that goof from Fresno and the surprised look on his stupid face when he went to stab Johnny Mac and the cheap shiv just bounced off the cookie tray. And Mac turned around and like put his lights out and then stomped him until the guards got there. And Johnny Mac was one big fucking black man, too. And why the hell am I thinking about that, Tim wonders. Because this is no time to daydream, because they're coming after me. Tim's trying to think. Shit, trying to stay conscious. And walk and look behind him, and even in the crowd, he can make them out now. Three guys dressed like dorky Taurus. One with the I Heart San Diego t-shirt. Another one with the SeaWorld t-shirt. And a third with a Padres cap. And Tim doesn't know how he missed him, except that he's a world-class fuck-up. Now Tim knows he's truly out of his league, because there's just too much going on for him to handle. Maybe Bobby the Great Z can deal with this shit, Tim thinks, but I can't. Like, there's getting away with my ass and finding Kit, and now we're going to be out of money and out of chances, and I'm going to get whacked at the fucking zoo for Christ's sake. And is that a pisser or what? I mean, you lived through three stretches in the joint, the Gulf War, the whole fucking scene in the desert, and you're going to buy it at the zoo. But then he thinks, would these guys really take you out in broad daylight in a public place? And then he thinks, well, I guess so, because they just tried it, didn't they? Life blows big time. What Tim would like is to sit down and keep moving at the same time. Which even he knows is a contradiction, but then he remembers the cable cars. Doesn't think it through though, and only figures out when he gets on one that now he's fucking well trapped. Because only two of the guys get on the car behind him, and the third one goes racing up to meet them at the top. Anyway, there's nothing to do about it, so first Tim pulls out his shirt to check his side, and there's a nice five inch cut bleeding like a son of a bitch and starting to burn. 
But it isn't too deep, he sees, and figures he won't bleed to death if he can get a bandage pretty soon. So he tucks his shirt back in and starts looking around for Kit. Who isn't at his bench by the gorillas. Tim feels this fucking terror shoot up around his heart because the kid isn't where he's supposed to be. Tim's looking wildly around and can't spot Kit's blonde hair anywhere. And now he feels like he can't breathe. And while he's cranking his head around, he sees the two guys in the gondola behind him just grinning. Tim looks up the hill and sees Mr. SeaWorld leaning against a tree, screwing a sniper rifle together. And Tim knows the guy doesn't have to be Lee Harvey Oswald to put two nice shots into Tim as he steps out the gondola onto that nice flat platform. You dumb moke, Tim tells himself. You monumental fuck-up. You blow the money, you lose the kid, and you get yourself killed. Just another day's work for Tim Kearney, three-time loser. So Tim's riding up to his death like he's on a confader belt at a slaughterhouse. Like he's a hundred feet in the air with nowhere to go except the target range. And what's he going to do? Jump? Which is what he does. Later, his pursuers will tell Monk that Bobby Z flew. Fucking flew through the air. Just climbed up on the edge of the rocking gondola. Kept his balance and fucking flew across to the car coming down the cable on the other side. They'll tell Monk that all of a sudden it was a Ringling Brothers Barnum and Bailey circus up there. Because a few people who happened to be watching at the time scream like they do at the circus when they think the trapeze guy is terminally fucked up and there's no net. Which they're like isn't at the San Diego Zoo. Just hard ground and spiky fences and man-eating animals and shit. In fact, one of the hitters will tell Monk he saw the lions look up in anticipation when Z left from the gondola. But Monk will put that down a literary license. Anyway, the fact is that anyone who drops out of one of those gondolas at the San Diego Zoo isn't likely going to pop up and go like, ta-da! And jumping from a car going up to a car coming down is only something an idiot or a lunatic would attempt. Or a legend. I can now see why the guy is a legend. One of the hitters will tell Monk, who will not think this literary license, but will nevertheless be annoyed by the remark. He flew, the hitter would add in odd tones, like Superman. Anyway, people are screaming, including Tim, as he jumps out the car and he's in the air for what seems, especially to Tim, like a long time. Then he's grabbing the edge of the descending gondola and holding on by the fingertips, and the two guys chasing him are too shocked to shoot him, which would have been easy except that a couple dozen people are now paying intense attention. People screaming, lions roaring, elephants trumpeting, security guards on the run, and Tim finally gets a leg up and over and pulls himself into the gondola, landing with like a thump. At least for the time being. Because Tim knows that when he reached the bottom landing, there'll be security cops there. Which could mean a slammer, which will mean death. And anyway, Mr. SeaWorld is probably right now madly unscrewing the sniper rifle and trying to get back down the hill to greet Tim at the successful conclusion of his ride. So there's nothing to do but jump again before he gets to the landing. Although Tim waits until it's about a 10 foot drop before he does the Geronimo bit. And just hopes that whatever's down there is either like a Bambi or something that's already had its lunch. 
It is some sort of weird deer, as it turns out, that looks real startled when a human drops from the sky. It looks at Tim for a split second, then runs like hell away, which Tim also thinks is a fine idea, and he starts to climb the fence. Tim can hear the pitter-patter of little security feet, a familiar sound from his youth, running around looking for him, so when he gets over the fence, he gets into some thick bamboo and starts to make his way onto the path on the other side, where maybe he can get away. Going through the bamboo was such a good idea that the sniper thought of it too, and they're each a little surprised when they come practically face to face. Tim hits him with three short, chopping blows to the face and the guy drops. Tim keeps moving, thinking, fuck it. If I get out of here, I'm going to find the kid and move to Oregon because you have to fight too many people when you're Bobby Z. So he just decides to start another life altogether. How to finance is a different story, and he thinks maybe he'll stop in Palm Springs on the way out. But first, he has to find a kid. Because although the smart thing to do would be to just get the fuck out of there and leave the kid, this is no time in his life to start doing the smart thing. Anyway, he just can't do it for some reason. Maybe the old impulse control thing. So even as he hears security cops in the bamboo yelling, We found him! He's hurt! Tim heads not out, but up towards the gorillas to see if Kid has maybe gone back there. He hasn't, and Tim goes on your basic whirlwind tour of the animals of the world as he strides past gorillas, orangutans, chimpanzees, the rest of the primates, across the Asian steppes, through the jungles of India, down by Hippo Beach, into the snake house, and he can't find Kit. And Tim is like panicking. He's not even thinking that the hitters might still be cruising around looking for him. He's just got tunnel vision for his kid and he can't find him. He sees a sign for petting zoo and makes a dash for that, figuring that no kid can resist petting goats and sheep and other smelly shit. But Kit's not there either. And now Tim thinks that somehow Monk knew about the kid and has grabbed him as a hostage. And Tim's thinking about shooting Monk in the kneecaps as he goes out into the parking lot to drive off and phone Monk and make a deal. And then he realizes he can't remember where he left the car. Parking lot the size of like Rhode Island and he can't remember where he left the car. Some kind of bird. Tim can't remember the actual bird, but what he can remember after some effort is Kit repeating the ostrich row. He has a real clear memory of Kit's face as the kid repeats it to himself. So Tim looks around until he spots the ostrich on the pole and heads for the car, only remembering that Kit has the keys when he sees a boy sitting in the pasture seat with a white plastic bag on his lap. You're hurt. Kit says when Tim slides to the driver's seat. I thought I told you to wait at the gorillas. Good thing I didn't, Kit says, pointing to the bag. How'd you get that? I followed you to the elephants. You did? And then I followed the guy with the white plastic bag, Kit said. And I grabbed it and I went. You shouldn't have done that. Kit shook his head. No guy's going to chase a kid through a zoo. They'll figure he's a pervert and beat him up. Tim looked at the kid for a long moment and says, We're moving to Oregon. Kit hands him the keys. Chapter 50 
Johnson's been sitting in the cabin for hours, and he's starting to get worried that maybe Bobby smelled out the trap and taken off. The thought aggravates Johnson, because he's tried to be real careful. He even decided against going through the front door, because Bobby might well have been cautious enough to leave a hair or something across the door and would check it. So Johnson went through all the hassle of climbing through the back window, and now he's sitting there with his cocked rifle across his lap. And maybe his man ain't coming after all. The same thought occurs to Boom Boom, who spent the entire afternoon draining beers and eating pork rinds and waiting for that lime green car to come rumbling up the road. So by nightfall, Boom Boom's drunk and ugly, much drunker than really behooves a man about to commit a murder, even by remote control. He just sits there by the window, staring out, and it's almost too dark to make out the lime green car when he does see it head up the road. Johnson sees the headlights when they turn into the parking lot. The lights flash across the window and change shape as the car turns in. Johnson sits up in his chair and damn near stops breathing. He's so afraid Bobby Z can hear him. Johnson gets up and moves against the wall. He hears the car pull in and the motor stop. So he raises the rifle to his cheek and waits for the son of a bitch to come through the door. Listens real hard for the sound of footsteps. Hears car doors open and one car door close. And hears the boy yell, I'll unlock the door. Chapter 51 Tim lets Kit run ahead. It's taking Tim a little time to turn his sore body sideways and ease out of the car especially with the bandages and tape that Kit plastered all over his side after they stopped in that drugstore in El Cajon. Also, Tim needs to get the bag full of money out of the trunk, but then he realizes that Kit has the key, and Kit's running for the door. Hey, I need the keys, Tim yells. But Kit keeps running and yells back, I have to go to the bathroom. Tim figures the bag can wait for a second. He starts to follow Kit when he remembers something. Remembers he left the light on over the sink, and the cabin is totally dark. Stop, he yells to Kit, and Tim starts running to catch him, because the boy is just giggling and running to unlock the door before Tim can catch him. Last one in is a rotten egg, Kit sings out. Then the night turns bright white. 916-633-1517 Ratchet and Ratchet at gmail.com Ratchet Book Club on Twitter Um, You can leave a review at podchaser.com Cool thing about it is you can leave a review for the show as a whole You can leave a review for separate episodes I appreciate both Uh, You can also um, help me buy books at buymeacoffee.com slash sscast uh, you could become a Patreon member at patreon.com slash single simulcast. I think that's about it. Oh, you could also review on Apple Podcasts and uh, Stitcher. Thank you so much for listening. I do greatly appreciate it. Y'all be good. I'm going to holler at you later. Peace. Intro and outro to Ratchet Book Club 
is by that kid Garan and it's called goodbyes. You can email him at tkgbeats94 at gmail.com for more information on how to lease this beat. This is Single Simulcast. Don't know my name, just listen.